Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Tom Schachtman, author of How the French Saved America. Tom Schachtman, author of How the French Saved America. Why did you write the book? Why did I write the book? Oh, there are many reasons, but uh, I got led to this from my study on a previous book called Gentlemen, Scientists, and Revolutionaries. I came across a character named Louis de Portaille, and he's a French engineer, fabulous, very interesting fellow. And he became a very close confidant of Washington's. He um, essentially founded America's Army Corps of Engineers and later wrote the, the curriculum for West Point. In very, very interesting guy. And I started looking into more of the engineers that I, I wrote about in that book and then branched out and saw that there were all these stories about Frenchmen in the American Revolution that did not involve Lafayette and that were very interesting. And then I looked uh, up the literature and I found that the most recent book that had really been written about the whole thing was published in 1911. So I said, well, you know, this is a real opportunity to tell a story. And uh, I was having lunch with a friend who happens to be an editor and is considered the most francophile of editors in New York. And uh, I started telling him some of these stories and he didn't know them and he published a number of books about France. Um, so I said, well, you know, this is a real opportunity here. So uh, I, was, I got a contract and set off very happily to work and I'm very pleased uh, to be able to tell the story. Well, when the American Revolution was going on or was just starting, well, what was going on in France? Well, France was just recovering from a fairly large defeat. They didn't like to call it a defeat, but it was in the war that ended in 1763. We know that it's a French and Indian War here, but it was called the Seven, war, Seven Years' War in Europe. And uh, they're still coming back from that. And they've got a new king. The old king had died rather suddenly in 1774, and his grandson, who was the only heir, uh, was put on the throne at the age of about 20, and he becomes Louis XVI. And there's an opportunity with Louis on the throne to do new things and to restart France. And uh, that's what happened. What was happening at that time was largely affected by the opportunity that the American Revolution presented to France to do something. What did France want out of it? Power. Uh, what does any country want versus another country? Either you want to take them over or you want to prevent being taken over or you want to sort of get back to the parity that you were at during the Seven Years' War. And that, I think, was really what Louis and his foreign minister, uh, the Comte de Vergennes, wanted. Uh, they were a balance of power people. They, did, they had decided that they, France should have no more colonies, got enough colonies, which is astonishing in and of itself because 
European countries were thought to want more and more colonies at that time. And France decided that it did not, but it wanted to bring Great Britain down a peg or two, not collapse them, not do anything like that, which were interested in balance of power, but they would like to knock them back a bit, and so France would have a time to build up its own armed forces and its own diplomatic power as a, as a result of that. They didn't want to get Quebec back? No. As a matter of fact, that's one of the wonderful stories that we begin the book with right down the street here uh, at Carpenter's Hall uh, on a snowy winter evening and towards the end of 1775, a strange-looking guy comes to see Franklin, and uh, he's come from France. He's a chevalier, Achard de bon It's a wonderful mouthful of a name. And John Jay thinks he's in his 60s because he looks so strange, but he's actually in his mid-20s, the black sheep of a family. Uh, but he's there on a sort of quasi-official mission. He's got invisible ink and all those kinds of things. And he has a message for Franklin, and the most important part of the message for Franklin is France does not want Canada back. And Franklin is befuddled. He's certainly not going to show it in front of this guy, but he's a little befuddled, saying because he had figured, along with every other American that really gave any thought to this, what would France want to be allied with us if they were going to be allied? And certainly they'd want Canada back, and they don't, which is pretty astonishing. And uh, Franklin wanted Canada, but he wanted Canada for the United States. He wanted that to be, you know, the 14th colony or something. Was that the first reach out from either the U.S. to France or France to the U.S.? It's hard to say. I mean, there had sort of been a series of visitors that come from France. Uh, and also it's, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So France's hereditary enemy, they use that word a lot, was, was Great Britain, and they'd been fighting them for 500 years, and they assumed that they would continue to do so, that if the war wasn't going to come next year, 10 years' time, almost certainly, there would be some sort of war with Great Britain. So uh, the natural thing is, you know, it's, are the American colonies ready to revolt? And so people came over, more or less officially, to see whether that was the case. And the Baron de Kalb, who was a German-sounding name, but he was a Frenchman, uh, very experienced army officer, uh, high-ranked and also with lots of good connections, is sent over in 1765-66. Um, and he says, no, 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 the Americans have just managed to get the Stamp Act repealed, and they understand that their value to the mother country is, is, is in economic terms. So they're not ready to revolt, and they have no good reason to revolt because they're so important to Great Britain. Great Britain wouldn't be stupid enough to, to uh, really rile them enough to, to make them revolt. But they were. But they were. And they became rapidly so after that, rapidly in our terms, which is taking a period of a half a dozen years because uh, and, and, and all of that was necessary also to get them ready to ally with France when they eventually did. Because there was a residual fear of France and Frenchmen from the 1763 war. Right, the colonists had just fought a war against the French on the side war of against England. The French, and as always happens in war, you tar the opponent with every bad thing that, that happens, and you know, riling up the Native Americans and scalping this and doing that. 
and kind of come down from Canada and convert all of us Protestants to be to be Catholics. Things that are not really true. They were not happening, and at least not in, in great part. But nonetheless, the fear existed. And so uh, everybody was wary, including George Washington. Now, he was asked early on whether he would accept French soldiers, and he was not so sure that he would. Later on, he accepted French officers because they were well-trained, they knew what they were doing, and he had a tremendous need for experienced officers, so much so that he sometimes went overboard and, and was a little bit too indulgent with some of the French uh, who were really not, not such wonderful people as officers. Some were, a lot of them were, but a few weren't. And he was overly indulgent with it because of his tremendous need for experienced officers. Well, was there also some concern in France that if you encourage this rebellion in America, it's, it's citizens rising up against a king? That it might give their own citizens some Oh, ideas? sure. And as a matter of fact, when Vergennes uh, first came into office, in 1774 when Louis was, came on the throne. And he looked at what was going on in America. Uh, he said, you know, we got to keep away from this. We, we don't want to be, we don't want there to be contagion down in the Caribbean or South America, you know, or God forbid even France, you know, where people would think about, about overthrowing anything. I mean, but later on he came to see it as an easy way and a cheap way of nailing down the British in America so that France had time to build up its military forces and could also make new trade arrangements. I mean, for example, um, uh, there was a great trade that eventually both the French and the Americans wanted to have happen in, in mega terms. And it was put together initially by the Caron de Beaumarchais, the playwright. Uh, who was a pretty far-seeing guy in many ways. And he said, look, he sold the king, and he said to Vergennes, he said, here's the trade that I was going to make. And Benjamin Franklin also wanted to make this trade. We are going to get rid of our old munitions and ammunition and everything, send it over to America, and in payment for it, they're going to send us crops, tobacco principally, but also rice and indigo and wheat and other things that we've had to buy secondhand from Great Britain because all of those things had to be exported to Great Britain and then reshipped to France. And the tobacco was costing them three times what it ought to cost them. Were the colonies allowed when they were colonies to trade directly with France? No. Uh, for certain things, yes. For certain things that uh, the British had either had no interest in or, or anything like that. Some, but most things, no. And uh, it was quite important that this, this occurred because this gave France a way to, to participate uh, in, a, in a very inexpensive way. Today, what we call it is foreign aid. I mean, it, you know, we're going to sell this country over here, all of our outmoded equipment, and they're going to pay for it in our dollars in our country. So the money's never really going to leave the country. And we'll get rid of this outmoded stuff then we'll be able to build new ones. And that started before the there this, was a formal this, alliance? All of this is in place. Was it before the Declaration of Independence? All of this is in place before the Declaration of Independence. In the spring of 1776, while Washington is 
kicking the British out of Boston. So that's like Lend-Lease that Roosevelt did with Lend-Lease, foreign aid, whatever one wants to call it. Uh, we can come up with some good name for it. But it's a trade, and a good trade, and an interesting trade. Uh, it didn't quite happen because of lots of red tape and bureaucracy and things like that, especially in the tobacco end of it. But it was, it was thing. Beaumarchais and Silas Dean, who arrived in France just after the Declaration of Independence was issued, and some other people in France, helped put together this, this tremendous stuff. There were ten ships that they put together. One of them is called the Amphitrite, and um, we only have a, uh, an image of it. We don't have a, an actual painting or anything of some sort of model that was later de destroyed. But the Amphitrite had more cannon on board it than the Americans possessed at all. You say here that uh, Beaumarchais would later boast that he had uh, rented ships carrying 300,000 barrels of gunpowder, 30,000 muskets, 3,000 tents, 200 cannons, 100,000 musket balls, and clothing for 30,000 troops. And in addition to that, the Amphitrite alone carried a quarter of a million uh, bullets. So that 90% of the ammunition expended by the Americans at Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga, what we know as the Battle of Saratoga, which all came from France. So this happened after Lexington and Concord? I mean, there's already but a rebellion going on? After Lexington and Concord, which is the spring of 1775, um, France begins to consider doing something. Over that summer, uh, the Bon Voulard guy gets his credentials and, and comes and he reaches uh, into uh, Philadelphia and to Franklin through Francis Damon, who was a French-born guy who was the librarian of the library company at that time. That was their connection. And he kind of gets to see Franklin, and he, and he issues this wonderful, we don't want Canada back. American ships are welcome in French port. France wishes the American colonists well. That means you're wishing well the rebellious subjects of a fellow king. So they were stoking the American rebellion? They were stoking rebellion? it, and, what, and Franklin did a great job at snowing them in return because he said, oh, we're doing great here. We're about to take Boston. We're about to take Quebec. We have 50,000 men under arms. None of them wants to be paid. They're all doing this because they're, they're patriotic and everything, and everything's terrific. We really don't need your help, but if you feel that you have to insist on it, you know, we'll be happy to accept it. Uh, tell me about Beaumarchais. You mentioned he was a playwright. He wrote. Well, Beaumarchais is one of the great characters of history as well as a, a playwright, a very funny playwright, if you're able to read him in France. Uh, he, he, he was born to a lower middle class family of clockmakers. Uh, he married very advantageously at a young age to a woman who was quite a bit older and then conveniently died and left him both a title and, and some money. Uh, he was a music master at Versailles. He was a writer of scurrilous pamphlets. He was a government agent who chased after writers of scurrilous pamphlets. He was a spy. He was a counter-spy. He was a roué. Uh, you know, he, he, he made up to the, the Chevalier de, de, de Aon, who was, we don't know what he was. He may have been male or may have been female. Um, he had a marvelous history, and in addition to writing some interesting stuff, and a very good writer. Well, he wrote The Marriage of Figaro, that, wrote the marriage that of Figaro, Mozart which is a very, very anti-establishment play, and it was not allowed to be put on at that time because it was so anti-establishment. But he was an intimate of the court and an infant of the king. He was actually 
under prohibition then, and he had to try to get his, his rights as a citizen back because of some various other things. But he was far, pretty far-seeing, and he was in London, and he understood right away that the Americans needed support and that they would have to come to France for it. Uh, and so he, he got in with Bergend and with Louis, and he wrote to Louis, and he said, if you give me a million livres, in three years, I'll give you nine million livres. Now, this is a pretty good deal if you can do it. And he was going to do it by making this grand swap and get rid of outmoded equipment and so on. So, and Louis said, okay, here's a million livres, and I'll get a million from my uncle, Carlos III, who's the, the king of Spain. And you set up this phony front company, Hotelier et Compagnie, the Spanish name, and uh, the transactions will all be done by this foreign company with American businessmen, and the hands of the court will never be visible. And it'll work. And in fact, it did work. Well, at the time, how were relations between France and England? I mean, you mentioned that this were fairly the stable. Beaumarchais went to they London. They were fairly they stable, go back uh, except for the fact that the residual of the 1763 settlement of the war uh, said, for example, um, that the French are not allowed to run their own city of Dunkirk, that it's being run by the British because it's an entrepotent. It's right in the middle there. It's on, it's on the channel. Uh, a lot of commerce there. We run the city. Thorn in the side. And Newfoundland, Newfoundland fisheries, which were extremely important to, to France, as they were to Spain and Portugal. Uh, France is being shut out of, of activities there or being controlled there. France has problems with uh, the British in India and in Africa as well as in the Caribbean. So um, things are stable, but they're not great. And the reason they're not great is, according to Louis XVI and again, is so we don't have a big enough army and navy to make our presence felt enough. You know, they don't have to worry about us yet. So we need the time and we need the space to build this up. And that was one of the reasons, for example, that when uh, the Americans and the French concluded a compact in early 1778, that they kept it quiet because France wanted to have certain allies within the European community. And they figured if they declared war on Great Britain sort of unilaterally on the side of the American rebels, that their allies might drop away or wouldn't have a reason to go come to their side. So they wanted uh, a casus belli, or they wanted Great Britain to declare war on France. So for the next four months, they maneuvered around and finally found a casus belli, provoking all the time. What's a casus belli? What did the reason to go to war, you know, an or ordinary reason, you know, you've assassinated our premier or something like that. But uh, here it was, the. Uh, British Navy on the Channel had managed to surround a group of four French ships. And instead of just taking them all in, the commander said, okay, we'll, we'll do this mano a mano, one ship against one ship. So I'll send four of my guys against your four guys. And three of them, the British won the affair quite easily, and those ships gave up. But there's no war going but, on yet. But, but the Belle Poule, which is the French ship, uh, did not. They were all fighting separately, and it was fighting one British ship. And 
the British, in fact, had different ways of fighting on on the sea, which is kind of a little interesting, even for us who are not naval historians, which is when the British would fire as the ship was sort of rolling this way, so their cannon would aim down into the hulls of the opposing ships. Okay. The French would do just the opposite, which is as the ship was rolling back, they would fire up into the rigging. So you would read reports of these sorts of battles for 50 years in which more French were killed than British, but more British ships were disabled than French. And that's what happened with the Bell Pool. The Bell Pool limps into court, messengers sent to Versailles, and they say, okay, here's the Casas Belli. We can now declare war. But by that time, a French fleet was already en route to, to America. In fact, it had already landed by then. And when was that? This is in the summer of 1778. Everything seemed to happen Still fairly around early in the war. July 4th. D'Estaing comes at the gate to Philadelphia on July 4th, 1778. And other come in, in other years. And uh, so this is Admiral D'Estaing, who's arrived with a rather small but nonetheless important French force um, in the summer of 1778. And General Washington has been waiting for this for three years. So w what came first, the, uh, the signing of the alliance? or The, the signing of the alliance, but almost simultaneously with that. As soon as the alliance was signed when in February of 1778. And so shortly after that, the Dastang expedition is, be, is being gathered. Uh, by the way, it's bankrolled by a private guy in France who was a friend of Franklin's and, and host to him at that time. Uh, and it, it's not under the best admiral possible. When I say that, it, I mean, the, the evidence is it took him six weeks to get out of the Mediterranean. This is, this is a thousand miles, but nonetheless, it's, it, uh, it's an awful long time to do that. And another three weeks. Um, so he was late in getting to America. Just the mere presence that he was about to come here chased the British out of Philadelphia, where they'd been since the Battle of Brandywine. That's why the British left Philadelphia. The British left Philadelphia for a number of reasons, but one among the most prominent was the French fleet was arriving. Nobody knew how big it was or what it would do or what it wouldn't do. And they were aiming for Philadelphia. They were able to find that out. So they said, okay. You know, we're tired of this place, so we'll, we'll go back to New York. And they had new instructions because what had been a localized war of Great Britain against its colony had now become a worldwide war. Uh, I won't say it was the first world war because there were others before that, but it, it, it's pretty close to it. And because they were going to end up fighting the French in North America, on the Gulf Coast, in the Caribbean, off Africa, in the Mediterranean, off India, as well as on the Channel Coast, the English Channel Coast. It's a huge, huge commitment all over the world, all over the known world at that time, except in Asia. And um, they have to bring the forces back from Philadelphia to New York because they're then going to disperse them, some going to the Caribbean, some going to Nova Scotia, and so on and so forth. So um, it, it all happens at a fortuitous time. And Destang comes and he chases the British out, which is great. And then he pursues them up to New York, where they've already landed. And he goes to a place called Sandy Hook, which we know now. 
But Sandy Hook then was important because it was a sandbar that guarded the entrance to New York Harbor. Couldn't get in. Huge sandbar. Gestang is in the majestic Ville de Paris, which is 105 guns, biggest thing they've ever had. And they can't get over the sandbar. And the 94s are not getting over, and the 84s, maybe not even the 74s. 64s, definitely, because the British have 64s inside the harbor. Does that refer to the number of guns? Number of guns, which is a quick way of saying how big the ship is. And these are ships, after all, even the smallest of them, the 64s or so, which are not that small, uh, have several hundred men on board, uh, 64 cannon, things like that they carry contingents of Marines and so on. These are, these are big fighting vessels. Um, so Destang can't get into through the harbor at New, at New York, and he eventually goes to Newport, Rhode Island. And there he has a terrible time because he comes up against an American general, John Sullivan, um, who supposedly speaks French, but only when he feels like it. And they get along like oil and water, Destang and, and Sullivan. And uh, Lafayette goes up to help. He's a very distant cousin of the Stangs. And he says, he writes him a letter. He says, you know, we're actually more related by our joint hatred of the British than we are, of, you know, by blood. But nonetheless, you remember the salmon fishery of this guy down in Bordeaux near, near our homestead? Okay, <laughs> great stuff. Uh, finally, they managed to patch up things so that Sullivan, land forces, augmented by Lafayette and some others, uh, along with the Stang's Marines, there are 3,000 of them on board these ships, are going to assault the Newport Peninsula, Newport is inland somewhat, uh, and take it. And they get off, offload the Marines, they're ready to go, and they're starting and there's nothing much in their way. And all of a sudden, the British fleet appears in Narragansett Bay. And so Destang has to go out to fight them. He has to onload the Marines, goes back out to fight. They get all ready to fight, and there's this huge hurricane that blows both fleets to pieces. So that was the end of the 1778 <laughs> expedition. <laughs> and he says, I'll be back next year, and I'll do better. Well, next year he did actually far worse. And after summer, or winter rather, in the Caribbean, where he did just fine, he comes up in 1779, the summer of 1779, to relieve the siege of Savannah and is unable to do that. Uh, long story here, but uh, not a very nice one. And uh, he grievously wounded, and he heads back to France. Uh, that's the end of the first French expedition, and it, this leaves us in the 1779 to 1780 area very vulnerable. America was very vulnerable at that point. This is uh, almost the worst of times. Valley Forge was not the worst of times. <laughs> I want to back up a little bit to the, the American delegation in Paris. Yes. Because Benjamin Franklin was one of the delegates. And yes. You hear conflicting stories about how much credit he deserves for the alliance. So uh, well, how influential was he in making well, the alliance let, happen? Let's, let me put it this way to say the alliance came about because Louis XVI and Vergennes wanted it to not because anybody twisted their arm or charmed them into doing it. And to say, Benjamin Franklin arrived in Paris in between Christmas and New Year's of 1776. Okay? Right. 
and he's now fully accredited. The United States has declared independence. His friend Silas Dean is there, who's a co-commissioner. Arthur Lee, who succeeded him in London, has come over. There's the three of them. The three caballeros are there. They're ambassadors. They're ready to go. They've got treaties that are written by John Adams and all sorts of things, wonderful good stuff. And uh, so they send a joint note to Vergen. You know, we're here and we're ready to go. And Vergen says, welcome. Let's have a party. Then let's have another party. Let's uh, have a ball, have a gala, have an expedition to the country, maybe a hunting thing or this or that. A whole year goes by before anything happens. So we cannot really say that Benjamin Franklin pushed this into existence. Uh, he did all he could, but until they were ready to act, uh, it didn't happen. I want to ask you about something you wrote here. It's Franklin uh, did not push for an immediate alliance, but he did what Silas Dean had not dared to do, fueled the French public outcry for a, an alliance with America. So Benjamin oh, yeah. Franklin went straight I mean, one to of the, the French public? One of the things he did was set up a printing press. You know, hadn't been a printer for, for 40 years at that point, but he knew what he was doing. So he, he, he's out uh, in the suburb there, which is actually closer to Versailles, uh, in the home of a very, very wealthy man. Um, and uh, he sets up a printing press. And he sends out broadsides and you know, things to paste up on the walls and all of that stuff, contributes articles to magazines and everything. He did. All of this is beyond the capacity of Dean. Dean was, I won't say he was shy, but you know, almost anybody is shy when compared to Franklin Franklin. So uh, he's he just a wonderful dynamo, and they already loved him. They'd given him an award in 1773, you know, when he'd won what the equivalent was of the, of the Nobel Prize uh, from Britain for his scientific contributions. And but France had indicted him into, the, uh, uh, into, into their scientific society. He was lionized. But him uh, trying to stir up the French public for yeah. didn't cause friction he, with the French government? He was one of the first to understand the power of public opinion on public officials, even if they're monarchists. Uh, there, there are two great publicists in this story. One of them is Benjamin Franklin, and the other is Lafayette, who's, who's absolutely the best at it. And uh, here he is, a 20-year-old. He becomes the best BFF to, to George Washington by managing to get wounded at the Battle of Brandywine, and also to do some very genuine heroics at that point. And they sort of adopt each other, you know. Washington, the childless guy, or Lafayette, the man who lost his father when he was two years old. You say in the book, when Lafayette was <coughs> wounded, Washington said, treat him as if he was my son. Yes, but the problem with that, it's a wonderful quote, but the problem with that is it only exists in one place, which is Lafayette's memoirs. And it also does not exist in the early letters that Lafayette sent to his wife, which are contemporaneous with that. You know, he does say, I got this wound, a trifle, you know, type, type thing, you know, the way one would say so that your wife doesn't worry too much. Um, and also to be manly and grown up. You have to always, always still only 20 years old. But the letters that he wrote home, which were personal and all of that, he also designed them so that his wife, could spread them around Paris and have other things of his spread around Paris. Big self because at the same time, he knew that some of the disgruntled French officers 
had left and were going home. And they were going to spread lies about the American, whom he had already come to love. And uh, he wanted to do this. And so by the time that Lafayette arrived back home in 1778, 79, he's lionized throughout the world, one of the first citizens of the world. Franklin was another one. Uh, and he's, he's, he's untouchable, you know. He's actually still under indictment. The king, you know, had prohibited him from leaving the country. He left anyway. And while he was on the high seas coming over to America the first time, Fergens has the British ambassador, Lord Thormont, in his office. And he said, if you catch this kid, you know, give him a couple for us, will you, before you give him back because <laughs> I'm annoyed at him. Well, fantastic bow and scrape like everybody else when Lafayette finally comes back because he's really untouchable. And it is at that point that Lafayette says to the king, whom we can now address more or less, not completely as an equal, but certainly he's got a lot of clout at this point. He says, you cannot keep on with these piddling little activisions here. You can't send 3,000 Marines when our armed forces include 250,000 people in the Army and maybe 200,000 in, in the Navy. You know, we've got to send a substantial force and a substantial fleet over there. And by the way, I will write their instructions. And I should lead them, but I understand, you know, you really probably want somebody a little older. So that's how we get Rochambeau uh, with a substantial force in the summer of 1780. And he manages to land at July 4th, 1780. Nothing happens on July 4th. I want to uh, go back and read this one thing about the debate in Paris as to whether or not to support the American Revolution. You ask, would the American cause survive? Uh, this gentleman, Du Portai, asked rhetorically in a letter to Saint Germain. His answer, there is a hundred times more enthusiasm for this revolution in a single cafe in Paris than in all the United Colonies. Well, he's wrong, you know. He's a little overstating case. But it does sound uh, like Franklin was successful in... Franklin was successful, but he didn't have far to go. I mean, uh, uh, Dean was very much welcome. Uh, there was support in uh, French newspapers and magazines before that anything that you could do to tweak the nose of the British was going to be helpful. And the, the Americans are doing that. They cheered every success. You know, the news of... of of Lexington and Concord was received wonderfully in France. So was the news of the Declaration of Independence. It was widely reprinted. State constitutions, which were being written at that time, were reprinted wholesale in France. And nobody really worried about whether this was going to incite anybody to riot. They just say, well, isn't this marvelous what people can do? Did England know what was going on between the U.S. and France? Oh, they knew everything. They knew everything. Uh, Lord Stormont had tremendous uh, numbers of spies. He always had a guy by the name of Bancroft, who was Franklin's friend, who was brought over to help Silas Dean. And he then got pushed further and further out on the limb by, by the British intelligence services. And we have, and every, and he was the secretary of the American delegation. So he, he was a he, spy? He, telling them everything that they do. And they had other spies as well. I mean, it, it, 
you know, it's one of these things where uh, almost like out of the Cold War, let's take a walk in the park, you know, and hope that nobody's just listening. Um, it, uh, there was no way that you could seal it. In some ways, Franklin understood this. He didn't know it was Bancroft. But he, s he had said, I have to say to myself, not only are we being watched and listened to, but can I use that? Right. So they would send some disinformation as well as as well as information as well, and it was it was quite something. I mean, uh, uh, when when Lafayette was attempting to escape, you know, the one who had all the information on where he was was Stormont, you know, <laughs> from the British spies along along the Atlantic coast. Did did the British know that the Declaration of Independence was about to happen? Well, it it took a while to come about. You know, I mean, there were debates all during the spring. Uh, it had certainly become more or less inevitable after uh, the publication of, of Tom Paine's uh, pamphlet and uh, and other things, and then it was happening. And Lord Howe, in the fall of 1776, and he's meeting with Franklin and Adams, and he said, "Gee, I really wish you hadn't said that. You hadn't done because I, I'm empowered to negotiate." Amnesty and all sorts of other things, and uh, Franklin says, "Lord Howe, this is irrelevant. We're now independent. You don't have the power to grant us independency. You couldn't if you do. You wouldn't do it if you could. And so, what are we talking about? So, the Declaration of Independence changed things because, among other things, it made it possible." for the United States to be eligible for aid from a foreign country. And this is a very important aspect of it. It was certainly not the rationale for issuing the Declaration, but in the last paragraph of the Declaration where it says the United States is entitled to act as an independent country, you can do what all other independent countries do, among which is concoct alliances and that and so on and so forth. So this was an important thing to have happen, and it allowed France to finally become overt in the aid. Were there other countries that recognized U.S. independence? Yes, uh, the Netherlands did in, in certain ways, and eventually some of the others did. One of the important ones that did not was Spain, although Spain actually helped the United States, but uh, it, it would not recognize American independence. I want to ask you about Spain helping, because you say in 1779, that spring, Spanish troops were at St. Louis with the assistance of an American army contingent, and they defeated a substantial British attack by troops from Canada and members of various Native American tribes. You don't hear much about Spain fighting in St. Louis? No, we don't. We don't hear Lewis much about or it. In no, New Orleans, I, you have. I suppose I've a little shortchanged it in the book. There are a couple of good books about it, um, but I was concentrating on, on, on France. Um, but uh, Spanish help was important in the middle of the country, uh, throughout the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, uh, Spanish-led forces uh, took Mobile back. From was Louisiana Territory Spanish at that time? Yes, uh, there was no such Louisiana Territory. There was New Orleans, there was the Mississippi River, and then there was this vast thing, you know, anywhere from about 20 miles west of the Mississippi on. Nobody knew it was there. So, uh, and and the, the dominant power there was was Spain as well as as well as American. And on the upper reaches of the Mississippi, the the, uh, the British were were all over the place. 
and there were still many, many American Native American tribes there. Uh, you know, in, in Ohio, the, the Miami tribe was, was still a very powerful force. So, you know, we, d we tend not to understand this anymore, that, that uh, the Wild West usually began on the other side of the Alleghenies. Well, I, ask you, I want to ask you about some of the, uh, the French officers who were in America. You mentioned yeah. DeKalb and Conway, who also doesn't sound French. Oh, well, Conway was, uh, Thomas Conway was born in Ireland, uh, but he was brought up in, in, uh, in France and uh, became a French officer of long standing and uh, uh, had a noble patron and, and was on a good, good path. And uh, he was known as a reasonable author, but an incredible self-promoter. And when he came over to America, um, the self-promoting aspect of it seemed to come much more to the fore. And so we, we have what eventually became known as the Conway Cabal, which was an attempt not by Conway, really, but by other people, uh, with him as a sort of a figurehead, um, to try and take control of the army from George Washington. After all, Washington had failed in New York, and he'd failed at Brandywine. And here was General Gates, who was the victor at Saratoga, and so on. And um, there seemed a possibility of, let's change our leaders, and of course, the fortunes of war will change. Well, through a complicated series of events, uh, Washington found or was given the knowledge of a letter that Conway had written to Gates denigrating Washington, confronted him on it. There was military court-martial type activity and so on. Conway was disgraced, so much so that his brother-in-law was also fighting in the United States. He was a very, very smart, interesting guy distanced himself from Conway, uh, and I had been doing it since before this incident had happened, said, send me up to work with Gates, you know, and so on, because I don't want to be here in the middle of this. And eventually, uh, Conway is, says, okay, I'm, I'm going home, you know, taking my football and I'm going to go home. And uh, he hadn't quite gone home when July 4th, 1777 comes on and they were all at Monmouth, New Jersey, around there, and, and a Philadelphia-based general picks a duel with him, finally manages to get a duel with him. Everybody's been trying to duel with this guy for years, but he's been able to avoid these things. And he wounds him in the mouth, which is absolutely wonderfully ironical and perfect and everything like this. And uh, so then, and then he writes a terribly apologetic note to Washington, what a great man you are, this and so on and so forth. And Washington eventually repaid him in positive kind after the war was over. Uh, Conway applied to become a member of the Cincinnati, a wonderful group of ex-officers. And uh, there were people saying, what do you mean this? Why, why should we do this? Washington said, it's okay. I'll accept it. Uh, I want to ask you about some of the other books you've written because the the Flyleaf on the book says you've written 30 books or more than 30 books. I looked up some of the topics, and there's Skyscraper Dreams, The Great Real Estate Dynasties of New York, Rumspringer, To Be or Not to Be Amish, Dead Center, Behind the Scenes of the World's Largest Medical Examiner's Office, The Most Beautiful Villages of New England, mm -hmm. I Have Lived in the Monster, Inside the Minds of the World's Most Notorious Serial Killers, 
Gilded Leaf, Triumph Tragedy, and Tobacco. The thing about this list is there's no two books that are remotely similar. Well, that's what my, uh, my son, who's a writer, uh, tweaks me about that. He says, she's become an expert. Well, I'm actually, I'm sort of becoming an expert on the Revolutionary War period. I'm now writing my third book on that, uh, on that era. Um, but I, uh, I've been fortunate in being able to write about things that interest me or to have people come to me, uh, such as the, the world's leading expert on serial killers who coined the term serial killer. You're a co-author of a lot. Uh, you're a co-author on the book, uh, the fam most famous one's called Whoever Fights Monsters. Um, which sold many copies around the world, um, and then be able to help them tell their stories, which is, which is part of what I do. I'm a really a, a storyteller, and the book about called Skyscraper Dreams is about the great real estate families of New York, but it's about the builders, not the architects, and many gen and several generation builders, such as the Trump family, for example. Uh, it concentrates on some others. But um, he fits into that pattern of third-generation real estate guy. Are you a fast writer? I don't know. I don't think so myself. I mean, one of the wonders of the computer age is that you get to revise everything all the time, every day. And uh, so I, I, I'm constantly revising and writing and revising. Do you, do you work on one book at a time, or are you working on multiple books well, at a time? Well, now I'm working on one book at a time, I hope. Have you in the I past? Have, you know, I have ideas sometimes I have to swat them back because I, I uh, can't do too many things at once. I used to think I could juggle a few more balls, but... Uh, do you have a uh, list of, like, the next five or ten books you want to write? Well, if we all live that long, sure, but I, I don't really. But I have subjects that I'm interested in. And, you know, when I'm able to interest the publisher in it, great. You know, sometimes there are things that I'm quite interested in the publisher is not interested in. Uh, and it's hard to characterize what those things are. But uh, to work for with mainstream publications, you need to be uh, have something that appeals to a broad audience. It's a very different thing from uh, writing academically. And many of the books that I write are, are adopted as secondary texts or things like that in academia. But I'm not an academician. I didn't come from that background. And then I'm not, not attempting to do what they Nor do I have the constraints on me that many academic historians have. And this one is St. Martin's Press, so it's St. Martin's, I published a great many books each year, and I think the story of how it came about is a little interesting because of my editor, who is a, known as a francophile among editors in New York, and he's um, a personal friend, and we were having lunch, and I started telling him some of these stories that I'd gathered, and he, which just didn't know them, so we, that was a real opportunity for a book, and. Uh, but they published many, many others. St. Martin's put, you know, hundreds of books. I don't know about how many exactly each year, but, but a great many. I want to go back to the, the stuff in this book we've been talking about. And it, conventional wisdom always says that once the U.S. won the Battle of Saratoga, the French thought, okay, they're good enough to go in with. Is that the, what you've discovered? Well, uh, there's sort of a yes-no answer on that. Um, the French had pretty much decided by the fall of 1777 to enter into, into an actual alliance, do more than they'd been doing. And Franklin wrote a wonderful letter that he said, um, I, I can't quote it exactly, but he said, um, you've done too much unless you're intending to do a lot more. And that was exactly so. And Bergens also felt this. 
and he had received enough assurances from Spain and other places that this would be okay if they, if they really overtly supported the Americans. And uh, so he pretty much decided on it. But the most important man who had not made up his mind was Louis XVI. And the Battle of Saratoga, or what we know as the Battle of Saratoga, the news came over in the fall, late fall of 1777. And Louis writes a note to his uh, uncle, Carlos III, basically said, this proves we're not going to back a loser. He was the king of Spain? His uncle was the king of Spain? Yeah. And uh, so I think that's pretty much, much his attitude. So he was the man who needed sort of the last urging. And uh, after that, they were willing to do that. And after that, the negotiations uh, started up very, very quickly. Uh, almost, uh, and, and again here, Franklin did play a very interesting game because people were coming to see him from London, old friends, basically saying, take the deal with the British. <laughs> and he was sort of saying, well, you know, there's pe people with bloody hands, uh, they really can't uh, do anything for us, and this and that and everything. But I'm listening, you know. <laughs> and so they, they were encouraging the British for the purpose of spurring the French to sign the elite, the alliance. How did Yorktown come about? Uh, Yorktown is generally thought of as an American victory, and of course it is. But it, it had its origins um, in France and in Spain. And this is a very difficult thing for us to accept, although I, I think we really ought to because it doesn't diminish us in the, in the slightest. Uh, Washington always wanted to retake New York City. He felt it was the only target that, if retaken, would end the war. And so when Rochambeau came over in 1780, he tried to convince Rochambeau that they needed to attack New York. And Rochambeau, of course, knew this from previous correspondence and everything. And Rochambeau managed to elude doing so. And then in 1781, a na big naval force is coming. And in fact, Washington doesn't know where it's going. A French naval force or a British? French naval force under de Grasse goes to the Caribbean, then it's going to come up the coast. But they don't know where it's going to come to. And Washington wants it to come to New York. He's been looking for naval superiority to take New York for, for six years, five, six years now. And everybody sends letters to de Grasse, who's down in Martinique. Rochambeau sends him a letter. De Barris, who's the head of the French fleet in Newport, sent him a letter. La Luzerne, who's here in Philadelphia, the, the commissioner from France, sent him a letter. And they all say, go to the Yorktown Peninsula. It's the place where your force will have the most chance of getting somebody there, because we've got Cornwallis wandering around. We've got him somewhat bottled up. That's the place to go. Don't come to New York. And de Grasse is perfectly willing to take this advice because he was on that ship with the Stang when they couldn't get into the New York Harbor from Sandy Hook. So he eventually writes a letter. And before he writes that letter, he sits with the head of the Spanish forces in the Caribbean, Francisco de Saavedra, whose name most Americans have never heard of, uh, on the Vigipari in the harbor in Haiti and they decide on a one-two punch. First, de Grasse will come up and beat 
the British at Yorktown. Then he'll come back down, and combined French and Spanish fleets will wipe out the British in the Caribbean, the Gulf Coast, South America, get them out of the whole hemisphere. Pretty good plan. And in order for it to go into effect, De Saavedra says, we, the Spanish fleet, will watch the French possessions in the Caribbean while you go up to the North, North America. So de Grasse says, okay, give me some money. And they do, collecting it from people in Havana. So they're going to pay the troops. And de Grasse heads up to the Yorktown Peninsula. So the, the decision to go to Yorktown was not made by Washington. As a matter of fact, it was made in spite of Washington's belief that the only thing that would end the war would be a battle in New York. And de Grasse actually managed to reach the Yorktown Peninsula before Rochambeau and Washington get there, many days before, to fight a very important battle, which we know as the Battle of Virginia Capes, stymieing the British, investing the bay, Chesapeake Bay, which means it's all over it so nobody else can get in, and effectively isolating Cornwallis even before Rochambeau and Washington get anywhere near the Yorktown Peninsula. How big an army did Cornwallis have at the time? Cornwallis had, I think, it's, oh, it's just five or 8,000. That does not sound like a real big army. Well, they, it is in those days. I mean, uh, the combined American and, and uh, French armies were less than 15,000. So it was a substantial army, but it was in a very stupid place. And it was there because they didn't listen to Benedict Arnold, who had been commander of that fort early on, but uh, the, the troops hated him, the British troops. And so uh, they, and, and, and as he's leaving, he says to the generals in Clark, don't get yourself trapped at Yorktown. Get off this peninsula. Go somewhere else. You know, do do your damage elsewhere, as I've been doing with my with my force. But they didn't listen. When when the surrender happened, and you you described the surrender and the ceremony in in great detail. But when that happened, did people know that the war was over? People thought the war was over. The one who didn't think the war was over was George Washington, who said, you know, until. The opera is over, it's not over, you know. So uh, it was a great victory, and they believed that it would lead to negotiations that would end the war. And, uh, and most people acted as though the war was over, but it was not over. Remember that, that the peace treaty is not actually signed until uh, uh, 1783. So this is, this is a year and a half later, and uh, fighting did go on at a much lower level, uh, in, uh, most importantly in the South, where it was certainly not at a lower level. Uh, but there were other things that's going on as well. You have an a appendix or a epilogue in the back of the book where you talked about the fate of a lot of the French officers who yes. helped America, and, uh -huh. uh, and quite a few of them uh, got in a bad way with the French Revolution, and some of them were Well, well let's, let's look at it this way. These were French officers of a royal army, uh, in order, and some of them were pretty high officers, which meant they had to be fairly committed loyalists. Uh, royalist and loyalist to the king. Uh, so it was unreasonable to think that we would corrupt them entirely when they came to America and turn them into instant into Republican. We did that with a few, but not with very many. So what happened to them afterwards was a function of, of basically their upbringing and who they were, not necessarily of what they experienced 
in the American War. They had a fine regard for Americans. They found republicanism very interesting, sort of not for us type stuff. Um, and so many of them uh, ended up working against the revolution. What happened to American and French and British relations after the war was over? Well, I'd say that'd take about another three books, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see if we can do it a little bit quickly. Um, the French Revolution takes place in the last part of the 1780s and the 1790s. And uh, by that point, uh, we were repaying some of our debt to France. And the Washington administration used this as an excuse to say, we're going to stop our loan payments because they were gotten under a previous regime, which was not nice. And so the revolutionary government eventually start attacking American boats at sea. And this results in what we know as the quasi-war with France in 1797 which was not really settled until John Adams became president. And although Adams was thought, as, thought of as somebody who didn't like France and was pro-British, uh, managed to do a very statesmanlike job of settling this war with France, which was an important thing to do. With Napoleon coming on in 1800, he issues an amnesty to all French officers to come home, guys like Duportail, who were then living in America, wanted to take advantage of it. He died on the way back, but there were plenty of others. And if, uh, you know, the most important thing is the transfer of the Louisiana Territory. So it's a, a very complex story because it was owned, as we know, by Spain for most of that time. And Spain had recently ceded it, or had to cede it, to France. And France wanted to get rid of it because they needed money and they needed all sorts of other things. So the American were able to buy it very cheaply uh, because it was a piece of real estate that somebody wanted to get rid of. That is going to have to be the end of the story because uh, we're out of time. Uh, if okay. people want Went to pretty quick, I think. <laughs> if people want to know more about the story, they need to read the book, How the French Saved America. We've been speaking with author Tom Schachtman. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.